Amen. Thank you, Trey. Good morning, everyone. I'm excited to be here. Any of you excited to be here? Good, good. My name is Austin, as Trey said. My wife and our family and I, we've been coming here for about six and a half years. We love this place dearly, and I'm really excited to get to share with you this morning. Um, I wasn't going to do this. I think I'm going to do just a little bit of a tangent here, and I have the mic, so there's not that much you can do about it. Um, but I know some of you are fairly new to our church. I know some of you, this might be your first time, and, and I've been there. I've tried new churches, and, and I never totally know what to look at or what to look for. And I was just thinking as we were worshiping this morning, um, I just want to encourage you, the first thing would be, as you're looking at a new church, as you're looking at our church, listen to the Lord first before you're looking at your preferences, what you like or dislike. Uh, I think he's going to speak on where you should be and, and what he has for you. Um, but the second thing that I would encourage you to do, and, and again, I was just thinking this during worship as I was watching some of the things happening. Um, I saw my awesome wife, Anna, who's sitting in the front row here. She, she leads our A-Kids team here. I think this is probably the first time in over a year that she's actually been in the service because she's back there leading uh, everything that's happening. But I was just thinking about that team, and I was thinking about what was happening in our service, and I thought, if you want a good snapshot of what we're about, look at how we treat the kids. Look at how we handle the kids in our church, because we have a lot of them, and we're really intentional about how we disciple them. And there's a lot of different things I can stand up here and say about Antioch and, and what we do and what we believe, uh, and that's great. But if you actually just look at how we handle the kids, there's a pretty good snapshot of how we actually live that out. Um, I was just thinking this morning, like Pastor Andrew was over there discipling a bunch of young men as we worship, teaching them how to worship Jesus and what that looks like. Um, there's a whole bunch of our pastors and elders and staff that are back in the kids right now. They're not in here because they're serving in that area. Uh, and Anna and Mindy and their whole team of volunteers just do a really good job of discipling all of the kids. It's, it's really not childcare back there. And honestly, it's not, even, it's not even children's church. It's just church. And I think that's really special, and I think that's awesome, and I'm not saying that's new, unique to us, but I think that gives you a good picture of who we are and what we're about. So I'd encourage you to just pay attention to that. And that has nothing to do with my sermon or what we're going to talk about this morning. So you can take that for what it is, do with it what you want. We're going to go ahead and get started this morning. So go ahead and pull out something to take notes with, pull out your Bibles. We are a note-taking, Bible-believing church. When God speaks, we want to remember what he has to say. So grab something to take notes with, pull out your Bibles, go ahead and turn to James chapter 10. I'm just kidding, that chapter doesn't even exist. You can't turn there. I want to see who's paying attention. Who knows what our passage is going to be this morning? Who can say it? Hebrews 8, that's right. We are on week 8 of a 13-week series, going through the entire book of Hebrews chapter by chapter. So turn to Hebrews chapter 8. This morning, all we're going to do is bring clarity to the whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament, and everything that's happened since the New Testament. We've got about 32 minutes to do that, so we should be in really good shape. We're going to dive in pretty quick. So if you turn to chapter 8, go ahead and stand up for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read all 13 verses of Hebrews chapter 8. If we really want to posture our hearts and our ears to hear what the Lord has to say this morning, 
And I can't think of a better way than to just start off with 13 verses right out of his word for us. So Hebrews chapter 8. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as, is as much more excellent than the old covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant from the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the days when I took them out by the hand out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their inequities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're ready and you're willing to speak. I pray that even just in those 13 verses, would you speak something specific to us? Would we hear your voice? Would we tune our ears to hear your voice, to love your voice, to dig into what you have to say for us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. As we dive in to chapter 8, we've already read a lot of Hebrews, if you've been with us for the last two months. But here in chapter 8, the writer of Hebrews gives us an absolute gift. The first line of this chapter says, now the point in what we are saying is this. Do you know how good it feels to sit down and write a sermon? And the first line of that chapter is, here is the point. That feels so good. We've had so many amazing men teaching so many heavy and loaded and amazing things out of this book. And then I get to come along halfway through and start with a sentence like, now here is the point in what we are saying. But not only is that exciting, because it is, it's helpful and it's exciting, it's great, but we also should be having some like red lights flashing, there should be some buzzers going off, an alarm should be sounding in our heads. We've covered a lot of things in the book of Hebrews, and to do an entire series going through it is really hard to cover everything, but if there's anything that we're going to miss or skim or skip over, it better not be whatever follows that sentence. Right? We better pay attention to what's coming after that sentence. 
So what follows it? What comes after that flashing red light? Verse 1 says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. The writer has been doing all of this buildup, all of this comparison to the Old Testament, to different things that have happened along the way. He's been laying out the need of the people for somebody that is greater than the angels, greater than Moses, greater than the Levitical priests. And it all culminates with this sentence. It all culminates right here in chapter 8 by saying that we have such a high priest and his name is Jesus. So trying to decide where I want to go here. Okay. So we have the high priest and his name is Jesus. Throughout this series, we have been asking the question, who is Jesus? We've been looking at each chapter, all seven chapters so far, we've answered that question. Who is Jesus? And now we get the, the answer to that question really early here in chapter eight. The writer says, this is the point. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the point. The answer to that question, who is Jesus? Jesus is the point. And I want to be really clear when I say that, that we're not talking about a sermon culmination. We're not talking about even the, the Hebrew letter being culminated in that point. It is true, Jesus is the point of the sermon, and Jesus is the point of the letter, but that's not what we're talking about. We're not just talking about a subject matter. We're talking about a person. We're talking about him being the point is who he is. It's an identity marker of who Jesus is. He isn't just this thing that we talk about, but he's the thing that everything in all of history has been pointing to. Jesus is the reality, the culmination, the focal point of everything. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The thing that follows that flashing red light sentence is Jesus. Now, one of the things that I love about Hebrews and the way that it's written is that the Hebrew writer has been building everything so great in, that, in those first seven chapters. He's talked so much about the superiority of Jesus that when we get to this point in chapter eight, we aren't actually surprised that Jesus is the point. It's not like a suspenseful thing. He's been building that point the entire time. So now, instead of being surprised, we are ready to embrace Jesus as the point, and now we can be led into some of the practicals of what it looks like to have Jesus as the point of our lives. The first seven chapters have served as a really good resume for why Jesus should be the point. But now we get to apply it. We get to live it out, Jesus as the center of our lives. And I think even as I stand here, sometimes it might sound a little silly for me to stand up here and have this whole sermon and have this whole thing where I'm saying Jesus is the point. Like we all showed up at church this morning, right? We all had like a pretty good idea of what we were getting into. We have our Bibles. It says Jesus people on the wall out there as you walk in. 
Like, it might sound silly for me to make such a big point of that. But what the writer of this book, the writer of Hebrews is building is that no matter what choices you make, you can affect that Jesus is the point. No matter what circumstances come to you, no matter what life choices you make, whether you acknowledge it or not, Jesus is the point. So now we're shifting. We're no longer just establishing that truth. That is a truth. Jesus is the point. Now we're shifting from that to the realities of what it looks like for you and I to live our lives with Jesus as the point. He's already the point of everything, but aren't there often things that we try and replace him with, things that we put at the center? Just like this early audience that the writer of Hebrews was writing to, they already knew that Jesus was the point. That wasn't, again, he wasn't like trying to build the suspense and then throw out this mysterious answer. They were Christians. They already knew that Jesus was the point. But just like them, when life comes at us, when things happen, when circumstances change, there's this large temptation to shift what we have at the point of our lives, at the center of our lives. Politics aren't the point. Social justice isn't the point. Your sexuality isn't the point. Social media isn't the point. Church isn't the point. Life group isn't the point. Even your wife, your husband, your family, your kids, they aren't the point. Jesus is the point. So what we're going to look at this morning is the practicalities as Jesus as the point. And we're going to do it by comparing the old covenant that is mentioned here with the new covenant that is really plainly laid out. As we compare this, we're going to look at three different pieces. We're going to look at the what, the where, and the why. And it's all going to be in relation to these, these two covenants that we're looking at. But we're going to do all of it through the lens of the who. Even as we look at the practicals, Jesus is the point. So this audience that the Hebrew writer is writing to would be really familiar with the old covenant. They, they would be really entrenched in what all of that meant, what the laws were, what the covenant actually meant, what the tabernacle was, what the high priest did, what the sacrifices looked like. They would all be really entrenched in that. And we've looked at some of those comparisons, some of the things in the old covenant over the last two months. But we also need to do a quick overview just to hit a few of the quick points that are going to be really important for us in our understanding this morning. The old covenant that's referred to here is the Mosaic covenant. It's the covenant that was handed down to Moses at Mount Sinai. It most famously includes the Ten Commandments, but it's all of the laws that were given to govern God's people. It includes the tabernacle, which is where God was going to have his presence dwell amongst men. It includes all of the family line that leads to the high priests and the sacrifices and all the different things that go along with that. It was really everything that helped men be in right standing before God. 
And it also highlighted the blessings that God would pour out on his people if they strictly obeyed the laws and the covenant that was given. Follow the law, get the blessing of God. That's the quick version. Do you all feel like you're caught up now? You good? The quick, the quick notes version, the cliff notes? So as we compare and contrast that, that old Mosaic covenant, to the new covenant that the writer of Hebrews is laying out, we're going to start with the what. The what gets shown to us in verse 5 of our passage here, where it says they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. It's referring to the old covenant, referring to the priests and the tabernacle and the sacrifices. They serve a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. The old covenant was a shadow. And if we're looking at that to contrast, which is what we're doing, we're comparing and contrasting, that would mean that Jesus and the things of heaven are reality. Jesus is the mediator that opens up the door to the reality of the things in heaven. The old covenant was a shadow, so the what of the new covenant is Jesus is the reality. And to be honest, even as I wrote the sermon and I was writing some notes, I hesitated to put the word reality in there as the what, because I think sometimes we can kind of get a skewed view if we use the word reality when we're comparing two things, because it might make us think that one thing is true and one thing is false. The reality is true and the other is false. Or right versus wrong, something like that. Real versus fake. But that's not what the writer is saying. That's not the words that they use. Shadows are very real. They exist. They're just pointing to something else. They're reflecting something else. So why is it important? Why is that an important distinction that it's shadows and not something false? I think it's because if we look at it as true or false or right or wrong, then we might get a skewed view of what's happening throughout the entire Old Testament. We could read the Old Testament and think, like, God put in this covenant. He wanted to be with his people. They tried it out for 2,000 years. Turned out, false covenant. Wasn't going to work. So he had to try and fix it, send Jesus in, see if Jesus would work for round two. But that's not what was happening in the Old Testament. That's not what was happening with the Old Covenant. Jesus was never plan B. Shadows can only exist when the thing that they're reflecting is already in existence. Jesus and the things of heaven were always the plan for God's interaction with his people. The old covenant was just a reflection of what was always in existence. And I, do, I know that as we compare and contrast, it can be really hard to relate to some of these things. We don't live under the old covenant. The people that were getting this letter, this sermon, were really familiar with the practices of the old covenant, really familiar with the shadows that they were living in. And it can be really hard to relate to that. But I think there's a parallel truth that we're seeing here about Jesus, and it relates to our own identities. Now, some of this target audience, as they're reading this letter or hearing this sermon out of Hebrews, they would be hearing these things about the Old Covenant, and they would be thinking, yeah, there's nothing wrong with the Old Covenant. What was wrong with it? God made it, right? 
So with their limited understanding, with their human reasoning, it could seem like there are only two options. Either the old covenant was fine, it was perfect, or God messed up when he made it. Okay, so let's apply that logic to our own lives. Let's apply that logic to how we live. Do we ever live in a manner that suggests that we might think that way about how God made us? Either God made me perfectly or God messed up when he created me. And I don't think we would actually say it that way because, you know, logically we know that's not true, but I think we live sometimes in a manner that suggests that we might embrace that false logic. God made me quiet and shy, so it's okay if I don't lead my wife and my family very well. God gave me a really aggressive personality, so it's okay if I don't submit to my husband. God made me love sports, so it's okay if I put my favorite team above everything else. God made me really emotional, so it's okay if I let my emotions dictate every decision that I make. God made me really motivated, so it's okay if I put my career ahead of everything else. God made me really content, so it's okay if I'm slothful and lazy. Again, I know we wouldn't say those things out loud. Those phrases sound ridiculous. I get it. But we fall into them sometimes in a way that suggests that we let ourselves use false logic every now and then. And to be completely honest, there's some truth in the base of that logic. There are some real things there. God made the first covenant, and he didn't make a mistake when he made it. God made you, and he made me, and he didn't make a mistake when he made us either. You were knit together in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are made in the image of God, and he loves you for who you are, and he sees you for who you are. That's all true, but let's not be people that live in partial truths, right? There's some more truth to that. We can't leave out the rest. You are also made to be in relationship and walk with God, to be in relationship and walk with Jesus. Just like God's covenant with his people couldn't be reality without Jesus, Who you were made to be cannot be full reality without Jesus. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and you will produce good fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus wasn't plan B for God's covenant and he's not plan B for your life. So everything about you Literally, everything about you, your personality, your thoughts, your dreams, your hopes, your desires, your strengths, your weaknesses, they're all just shadows apart from Jesus. God's plan for your life all along was to be in relationship with Jesus. And God's plan all along for his covenant was to include Jesus. That's the what. Jesus is the reality. He was the reality of the covenant, and he is the reality of your life. Now let's look at the where. The where of the new covenant is heaven, but it's not some ambiguous heaven that we sometimes think about. So let's look at some specifics here. Verse 1 of our passage. 
Now, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it isn't just this big general, Jesus is up in heaven somewhere thing. Like he's just floating around in the heavens. Now, I don't know what the confines of heaven look like. I'm not making a commentary on the size and shape and location and all of that of heaven. I don't know what it looks like. But what I am saying is what our passage says. There is a heavenly tabernacle. I don't know if it has walls and size and shape or where it's located in heaven. I don't know how any of it works, but it exists. That's what the shadows of the old covenant were reflecting. God gave Moses the plans for the tabernacle, but it was still set up by man. God gave David the plans for the temple, but Solomon, a man, still set it up. The heavenly one is set up by God. We know that. We know that the throne of majesty is located there. So we know it's a throne room. And we know that Jesus is seated at the right hand of that throne. And the fact that Jesus is seated is really important to the where of the new covenant. You see, under the Mosaic covenant, the high priest sitting would have never been a thought. They would have always been leaving to prepare to bring in another offering, leaving to prepare the way for another high priest to come in. So the fact that Jesus is sitting, it once again shows his superiority over the shadows. It also shows that unlike the earthly priests, he didn't have to leave and come back and do it over and over again, giving sacrifices. We're going to talk a little bit about that in some of the future chapters here in Hebrews. But it also shows us something else. Several months ago, we did a series on the Holy Spirit. And during that series, Pastor Andrew talked about the upper room discourse, where Jesus tells the disciples that it's better if he leaves, that it's better if he ascends up into heaven. It's better because he's sending a helper for us. That's the Holy Spirit. That's what we were talking about at that time. But here, the writer of Hebrews is showing us that there's another reason that it's better if Jesus leaves. That wasn't the only important thing. It's not just important because of who he can send in his physical absence, but it's also important because of where he now sits. Steve talked last week about Jesus being the perfect intercessor for us. That's because of where he's at. He's taken his rightful place as the high priest in the heavenly tabernacle. The Holy Spirit is a huge part of that connection, this invitation that we have into the, the high places, the heavenly places, but it can only be enacted because of where Jesus resides. The Holy Spirit is the helper. Jesus is the mediator of the better covenant. I think sometimes in my own mind, I think I get this picture. This might be ridiculous, but just bear with me. I think I get this picture sometimes when I think of the Holy Spirit and Jesus working together of like this tag team wrestling duo. 
where Jesus is in the ring for a while and he's doing some sweet moves like pile drivers and calling everybody brother like Hulk Hogan. Like, like he, he's doing all this awesome stuff and then all of a sudden he just tag teams. He, you know, he tags the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit jumps in and then it's his turn to hold things down in the ring and Jesus is just sitting off to the side in a chair somewhere waiting until he's tagged back in to come judge everybody, right? I think I get that picture, but that's not what's happening. Jesus isn't sitting on the sidelines somewhere watching the Holy Spirit do his thing. On Christmas, we get this picture. We, we focus in on what it means for Jesus to come in human form, for God to be a man. On Good Friday, we think of the sacrifice that Jesus paid for us. And on Easter, we pay attention and celebrate that he defeated death and rose again. But how often do we actually sit and think about what Jesus is doing right now on our behalf? The important role that he's playing right now as we speak. The where is important because it's part of the access that we have to the who. Now it leads us right into the why. Why does Jesus need to be seated in the heavenly tabernacle? Why did we need a new covenant at all? Verse 7 of our passage says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Okay. But we said God didn't make a faulty covenant, right? Like he didn't make a mistake with the Mosaic covenant. So how can there be fault? Let's keep reading. Verse 8. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The fault wasn't in the covenant. The fault was in the people who had to uphold their end of the covenant. The old covenant didn't cover for the lack of ability that the people would bring to the covenant. The problem wasn't with the law itself. The law is actually God's righteousness, God's holiness. And there's nothing wrong with God's holiness or God's standard of holiness. If the problem were with the law, then God could come in and change the law. Right? Jesus could come in, he could just say, okay, instead of 10 commandments, now we're going to do five commandments. Instead of a day of atonement every year, we're going to do it every 10 years. It doesn't matter what you sacrifice or who sacrifices it, as long as you're doing something, it's fine. But the law is only reflecting the realities of heaven. So if the problem wasn't with the law, then the solution isn't with the law. The problem was in the hearts of the people, so the solution is to change the hearts of the people. Verse 10, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Jesus isn't changing the law. He's changing the shape and the consistencies of our hearts. He's changing our hearts to receive his law, to receive his spirit. He's changing our hearts and giving us his righteousness. 
Not only was the law not the problem and not bad, it's actually good. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill the law. And then he gave that life to us to claim as our own. So what does that mean? What does it mean that the law matters, but he gave us his life that fulfilled the law? It means that our role in this new covenant has now shifted. It shifted from external obedience to internal submission. We as believers and partakers in the new covenant now have Jesus' righteousness. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God's law, God's will written on our hearts. We're still listening to the voice of the Lord and obeying. But instead of trying to will ourselves into righteous acts, we're lining up our will with the Holy Spirit to be sanctified into living lives that actually adhere to that law that's already been fulfilled. The law being fulfilled doesn't mean that we just do whatever our flesh wants. It's actually the opposite. Now that the law is internalized through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus changing our hearts, we're actually growing in our capacity to live out the law, to live under the law, to live out God's will, to live out God's plan, to pursue holiness, to pursue the things that he has always wanted for us. Jesus' righteousness is counted towards us and we're given the heart ability to pursue and walk out that righteousness through him. Jesus is the point. Do you see it? It's who he is. As the writer of Hebrews continues to harp on that, he continues to go hard after it just like we have. And as he expands on Jesus being the center of everything, he closes it by highlighting two sets of choices for us and for God, for, for this covenant that we're entering into. The first choice is the choice that God has already made. Verse 12 says, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. That word remember isn't talking about memory. It's not talking about God being forgetful. He isn't like you or me where I walk into the kitchen and I forget what I came in there for, so I got to turn around and go right back out. That word remember is a choice that God is making. He is making the choice to count Jesus' righteousness as our own and to remember our sins no more. And honestly, a choice is a lot better than forgetting. Because 10 minutes after I leave the kitchen, I'm going to remember what I went back in there for. But God is making an active choice to remember our sins no more. And Numbers 23 tells us that God doesn't change his mind. Do you understand the freedom that comes with God actively choosing not to remember our sins? If we're focused on Jesus as the point, if Jesus is the center, and this is the benefit, this is the blessing that comes out of the new covenant, there is no room for shame, for doubt, for condemnation. This is the freedom that allows us to pursue the things of heaven, the things of God, without the weight of sin. That's the first set of choices that's highlighted here at the end. 
The second choice is our choice. Verse 13 said, In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. The old covenant is obsolete. It's ready to vanish. So what's our choice? Our choice is no covenant or new covenant. That's all there is. There is no way for us to work our way into right standing before God. Jesus is the point. Jesus is the reality. And now that we have the reality, we have no need for shadows anymore. They will no longer suffice. Jesus is the point. He's the point of everything. So what choice are we making this morning? Are we entering into this new, better covenant? Are we entering into this new, better promise? Or are we content in the shadows? Would you stand with me as we close this morning? As we end our time together, I'm going to ask the prayer team to go ahead and come forward. We're going to do another song. My encouragement to you this morning respond. Do something. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you need to come up here and get prayer for something different. Maybe you need to sit in your seat and ask the Lord where you've been living in the shadows, where you need his reality. Maybe you need to come up and have somebody else ask that with you. Maybe you need to come kneel up here at the front. Maybe you need to raise your hands. Maybe you need to sing a little louder. Maybe you need to sit in your seat. I don't know what the thing is, but if we're truly aligning ourselves with the things of heaven, there will be a response on our hearts. If Jesus is becoming the center, there is nothing magical or special about raising your hands or kneeling down, but there is about commanding our physical selves to line up with the posture of the heavenly things. So let's respond to the one who is the point. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your covenant is good enough for us, that it is the best thing that we could enter into. Thank you that I am not the point, that we are not the point, that Jesus is the one who is good enough, that we have such a high priest as this. Would you be the center of our lives? Would you be the focal point of everything? Would we see you for the reality that you really are? In Jesus' name.